Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Genies. It is Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race. The final episode is this weekend, 9 o'clock Sunday. That is Eastern Time, 6 o'clock Pacific. And it's going to be a great one to find out which team scores the $50,000. Well, it's great to have you along today. i got to tell you, we've got... We've got so much to cover. First of all, there is a state that is making available to descendants of Civil War veterans personalized medals that were made for these veterans back right after the Civil War. It's in West Virginia. We're going to talk to Randy Markham. He is an historian with the West Virginia Archives. And if you've got a Union soldier from West Virginia, you're going to want to hear about this. Plus, later on in the show, we're going to talk to Mikkel Keeney. She's back. You know, just this past week or so, there was a celebration of the 150th anniversary of the driving of the Golden Spike in Promontory, Utah. And this is where the trains were were joined to connect east to west, and it really changed the economy of America, the economy of the world, and the history of the world. And her grandmother had everything to do with making Promontory a nationally designated park. And it's a fascinating story. You're going to want to hear about that, and we'll have a little to tell you about the celebration that went on as well. It was really quite fun. And right now, filling in for David Allen Lambert this week, my good friend Brooke Gans from Reclaim the Records. And Brooke, it is great to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Fisher. Great to be here. You know, we've got a lot of stories to cover in Family Histoire News today. Some are fun and uh, some are a little, shall we say, controversial. That's true. And one of the first ones we have is the story about an Irish woman who, thanks to genealogists working very hard for her, was able to reconnect with her birth mother. But the thing that makes this story really unusual is that her birth mother is still alive and is 103 years old. <laughs> yeah, and almost 104. I mean, whoever hears of an 81-year-old tracking down their birth parents still living? I mean, that's absolutely nuts. She's been looking for 60 years. And uh, as a result of her going on a television show, that's how they got the genealogist involved and how it all worked out. And she's got half-siblings, blood relatives for the first time in her life, and she hardly knows how to act. So there is a, a story coming out about DNA testing of a man who lives in Montana who is part Native American. And surprisingly, when he had his DNA tested, as many of us have done in the genealogy world, it was discovered that his maternal DNA, his mitochondrial DNA, which is just passed from mother to child only down that maternal line, is one of the oldest types of mitochondrial DNA, but does not come from the area of North America where he is from. It may actually have come from Southeast Asia or South America. Yeah, they're actually comparing this guy's DNA results to actually finding Bigfoot, which I think is incredible. <laughs> and they say that they've traced his line back basically 55 generations with 99% accuracy. Incredible. So there is a new case involving Parabon, which is that organization that helps track down using DNA and DNA test results, cold cases. It helps looks at the cold case material that may have been saved 30 years ago when there was no mass DNA testing. The story that just came out, though, is a little different because in this case, 
it is a recent case. It is not an old cold case. And the person was not murdered, although she almost was murdered. This is a situation that happened in Utah very recently, where a woman who was practicing the organ in a church had an intruder come into the church and strangled her and almost killed her. She luckily survived. But the intruder left behind DNA at the scene. So this was a situation where the police and JetMatch were confronted with, well, what do we do with a case where they really think it was a severe crime, that he is at a high risk of doing this again? Can we still use DNA from a case like this to help narrow down the list of suspects? Right. And would JetMatch be willing to bend the rules this one time for the severity of this one case? Well, it turns out Jed Match did after having a discussion with the people on the case. And they did find the assailant who has been arrested or the presumed assailant who has been arrested based on uh, confirmation DNA that he discarded at his high school. Because it turns out the person who has been arrested for this crime is a 17-year-old high school student. Wow. And, of course, now the discussion is about, well, what are the ethics of changing terms of service with JEDMATCH and Parabon? And so it's part of a national discussion going on right now. Right. So we'll see where this goes. All right, Brooke, reclaim the records. You guys are out there always stirring up trouble. And as I understand it, you have a new lawsuit going on. Why is this significant? Well, first, let me remind people who we are. Reclaim the Records is a 501c3 nonprofit. We are all genealogists and historians and open records fans and open government fans, and we use freedom of information requests to get historical records out of government archives, government agencies, government libraries. Our latest lawsuit is in New York City. New York City has had a change in their rules recently to make it even harder for genealogists to get access to very old historical records about our own families. Right now, if you are looking for a death certificate in New York State outside New York City, there's a 50-year rule, but after that, it's open to the public. It's a historical document. But New York City changed the rules to say, no, no, we're going to keep these private for 75 years. Well, what we at Reclaim the Records decided to do about this was file a lawsuit. We made a freedom of information request saying we would like a copy of every scanned New York City death certificate, the actual certificates, but uncertified, just the scanned copy. Wow. We want every certificate between 1949 and 1968. The reason we picked those years is those are the records that are not available to the public, but are more than 50 years old. And if they had happened, say, in Yonkers or Albany or Buffalo, those records would be available to the public right. for research. Wow. But because they were inside New York City, we're blocked for 75 years, which is ridiculous. So hopefully so this will result in a change of the rule uh, as, the, as the judge looks at this. Good stuff, Brooke. Look at you go. Thank you. Brooke Gantz, thanks so much for filling in for David this week. We'll talk to you again soon. No problem. So imagine for many years studying your ancestors and discovering that one was from West Virginia, served in the Union Army, and then learning that West Virginia had personalized medals made for every single one of their Union soldiers, their Union veterans, and that many of them were never claimed, and that your ancestors' medal may still be out there for you to claim as a descendant. Yeah, that could be the case for you. And uh, this is why we're talking to Randy Markham today. He's an archivist with the West Virginia State Archives. And Randy, thanks so much for coming on Extreme Genes. This is a remarkable thing. And I can only say I wish I had a Union veteran from West Virginia so I could claim his medal. Yeah, there was quite a few of them. I actually had a few in my family, although uh, they've uh, long ago went out of, out of the archives control. But they're quite a medal, actually. Well, tell us about them. First of all, there were like 25,000 or something mm -hmm. in the beginning, correct? 
Yeah, 26000 plus. They had originally contracted for 26000 but they, of course, with misprints, some of the names being incorrect and things like that, it ended up going a little over 26000 But uh, Really? Did the state keep the ones with the misspellings? No. They, they ditched them, huh? Yeah, they had them, I guess, recycled. They didn't keep the actual dyes that cast them either, or the actual dyes that they used to actually mint them. They sold those to apparently a private individual, and, but they're out there somewhere. Wow. Wouldn't that be something? So the ones that you don't have could actually be potentially duplicated, right? Well, the face part of it could. The face and the backside could actually be duplicated. Now, the the names on the inscription part of it, that would be a little bit harder. Would be different. So when did this start? What year did West Virginia come out and say, we want to commemorate each individual who served in the Union Army during the Civil War? 1866 is when the legislature said this would, this would be a good idea to go ahead and honor these guys. A little appreciation token from the, the state. Now, West Virginia was kind of right on the cusp. Isn't this where a lot of the brothers would be on one side and other brothers on the other? Oh, my goodness, yes. Quite a bit. Of course, most of the soldiers were Union soldiers, but Fairmount was Confederate also. Hmm. So it, it was, I would imagine, a little bit of a battle when it came to the legislature approving uh, this act. Well, 1866, probably not quite as much as what it would have been probably after 1872 when the Confederates were given the right to vote again. and. It would have definitely been a little bit more of a, of a challenge, but 1866, it was still pretty much many of the men that had set up the original government and things, they were still in office, and yeah, 1872, that would have been a totally different thing there. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw a picture of you. I, I, of course, you have a fabulous beard, a fabulous oh, historian's you. beard. Love that. <laughs> but you're surrounded by envelopes and files of these medals, and you say you started out with over 26,000, and yet you're down to, what, uh, 3,000 something now? Yeah, 3,392. But that's a lot still. I mean, that's quite a few. And how often has West Virginia actually sought out descendants of the Union veterans in West Virginia? Well, ever since they were minted, they've been trying to get them out. The big push, really, 1890, when the GAR become involved in it. All the uh, adjutant generals for the state had pretty much said, you know, we've hit all the newspapers, we've done everything, sent letters and everything. And so at that point, one of the veteran societies to get involved in, the GAR, Grand Army of the Republic, they, they got them involved in it and in trying to get these pushed out there. And, of course, a lot of these commanders of the, the post of the GAR, the guys that were still close by and they knew them and things, they was able to get a lot of them out to them. And, then after several years of that, the GAR is like, you know, we've reached everybody we possibly can at this point. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, the GAR, I want to say it died around the 1930s, right, as the Civil War vets uh, passed away. And so that kind of left it back in the hands of the states. Did they get at least more than half of them out by 1890? Well, initially the state had gotten probably around sixteen to 17,000 of them out in that right before the GAR. And then GAR got a couple thousand out. And by that time, probably around 7,000 of them came back to the state. Wow. So you still had quite a few, and you still had to deal with that. And now recently, you've made another push. And what was the impetus for that? Well, some of the folks that had actually received the medals for their ancestors, they were like, hey, you know, we're going to get this word out there. And I think one of the fellows that was involved in it, he had spoke to somebody in the media and was like, oh, yeah, here's one way to try to get this out a little bit more. Of course, some of the governors had become involved in it through the years, most recently probably Governor Rockefeller. 
I've been doing a few things where I go out in different communities when they have fairs and festivals and things, and I'll set my little thing up there to show folks. If they say, oh, yeah, my several greats-grandfather was in the Civil War and was a Union soldier, and at that point I can take out the list and say, well, what was his name? Oh, boy. And if you had an experience with that, what was their response? Oh, oh yeah. They would give me the name, and I'd say, you know, the name is right here, which, of course, a lot of these regiments were geographical, where they were recruited at and things like that, and say, oh, yeah, my family's from up in the Ohio River Valley, and like, yep. This regiment was formed from folks from the Ohio River Valley, and good possibility, and at that point, we start doing the genealogy. Wow. And so you need the proofs, essentially, I would imagine, like the SAR and the DAR and the Mayflower Society. You want the documentation to assure that it's going to an actual descendant. Yeah, definitely with the primary documents. That's the important. Sure. The most important, yeah. Yeah. So do you do a little ceremony with them when they receive it? They actually do the personal appearance here at the archives on the day that, because there is a six-month waiting period on it. Ah. Uh, the day that it's due, uh, sometimes uh, folks do come in. Of course, the director, Joe Geiger, they have the little handing it over ceremony type thing and uh, congratulating them on you know, their ancestor, what they went through and things. And take a few pictures and things and put them on our website. What fun. What, what is the, uh, the most memorable response you had to one of those ceremonies and presentations? Well, we've had a few where the recipient would actually be a military member, and at that point they're like, my gosh, he was in the Army. And that's when we hear the little stories like, oh, yeah, he had been at Andersonville or something along those lines. And it's like, my gosh, the things they went through. And they're just wanting to keep the memory of that guy, keep that around. Very much alive. Absolutely. So let's describe to people what these badges, what these medals look like. And, of course, uh, we've attached a story that was on Fox on uh, ExtremeGenes.com so you can see the pictures of it. But give us a little description of what these medals look like, their size, and what they say. Yeah, they're kind of a brass, copper, very fine minage. For the nuministic folks out there, when they were struck and things, they're just a really smooth strike and very beautiful. And they have a ribbon, you know, the red, white, and blue ribbon, which mm-hmm. times have been pretty tough on some of them. Over the course of the years, they, they kind of fade a little bit. But they have, uh, at the top of them, they have a little placard-type deal. And most of them actually had uh, honorably discharged on. That was the majority of the medals were mm-hmm. actually on them. Killed in battle was uh, one of the other inscriptions on top of it. And then for liberty is one of the other inscriptions. They're about uh, almost two inches across. They have the ribbon behind it, have the little placard at the top with, with the information there. And then the really neat part is on the edge of it. It has the, the name and the unit of the soldier. And when, when everybody sees those uh, envelopes in the, uh, the drawers there, we have the information actually written on the outside of those envelopes so we can keep track of them. And they're quite a nice, as far as the strike and things, they're very, very nice. Thing. Unbelievable. Well, I'm just hoping that there's at least one Extreme Genes listener out there who winds up getting one of these medals, because I think that is just yeah. absolutely unbelievable. Do you keep them flat? Because obviously the ribbons would kind of bunch up with the metal on top, unless the metal part is down at the bottom of the envelope. How do you preserve those so they don't get messed up? Well, they're actually in a little cardboard box. Ah. And they came from the manufacturer that way. Of course, the engraver, uh, Abraham DeMarest, he did the engraving part and engraved the dies and the striking dies and things. And then he contracted the actual striking part out. But when he shipped them, he always mentioned that 
you know, so many cartons with so many medals and you know with the names on it, written on the outside of them and they were shipped in big cartons like 2000 at a time wow that's fantastic yeah. so you have a real good accounting of of what was created mhm as far as the paper collection, it's one of the archival collections that we have. A lot of the receipts from his firm, he was handling all the paperwork part of it also. That's how we know that there's more than 26,000 of them was made, because he said several of these were sent back for restrikes or mm-hmm. you know, the name was inscribed incorrectly or something like that. And there are some, I would assume, that just there are no living descendants, right? That the family line is ended and those will remain in the archives. Um, well, the 45th USCT, the colored troop, I would probably hazard that probably not very many of them will go out. Originally, there was a little over 220 of those struck, and we gave out a pretty good number. It's down to 168 of them remain actually within the archives. And the last one that was given out that I have records of was 2007. Wow. So a lot of dead-end lines there. Well, if somebody suspects that perhaps they have an ancestral medal sitting in your archives waiting for them, how do people go about obtaining that? Well, of course, online there at our website, we have, as far as the information, the application, the actual letter of application and, and everything in it. And then we have also what we're looking for when you do this application as far as you know, what kind of records, kind of a little hint page, different kind of census records, obituaries, births, deaths, marriages. Uh, right. The standard stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And you just apply online then and, and then contact you? Uh, actually, it has to be through mail. There is a fee associated with it. Okay. They can just download that uh, application form and fill it out and then get all their primary documents together, and they just mail that to me, and then we take it from there. Sweet. It's awesome. He's Randy Markham. He's an archivist with the West Virginia State Archives, and he may have your ancestors' medal from the Civil War waiting for you. Randy, thanks so much for your time, and uh, good luck with the project. Hope you can get rid of a whole lot more. Uh, thank you very much, and I hope so. Uh, you know, it's a great little thing as far as the memory for these guys. Totally. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Well, just recently, it was the 150th anniversary of the driving of the Golden Spike in Promontory Point, Utah. And it was quite the celebration. They called it Spike 150. And I had the opportunity to actually attend a huge uh, banquet gala the night before the uh, reenactment of the driving of the Golden Spike. And it was a lot of fun. The governor of Utah was there, as was the Secretary of Transportation of the United States, Elaine Chow. And it was a celebration of all kinds of cultures, many different people who participated in joining the Union Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad that connected the country coast to coast and not only transformed the United States economy, but the world economy as a result as well. And, of course, all the towns that sprung up along the way, they just thrived as a result of this. And uh, one of our listeners, who's also a passionate genie and a search angel helping people with DNA, is McKinney. Mikkel Keeney, and her family has a connection to all that's gone on here. Hi, Mikkel. How are you? I'm great. How are you? You know, I know you were out there because I saw this great picture of you in period costume at the uh, actual ceremony merging of these train engines. Looked like you had a great time. What was your feeling about the experience? Yes. It was wonderful. Uh, the theme was as one, and the committee made an extra effort to make sure that all were honored and involved and made it a statewide event so school children could learn about this important historical event. 
Yeah, when you think about it, I mean, the Chinese were practically forgotten, but they were really at the heart of all that it took to build this 2,000 miles of railway. It started, I guess, right after the Civil War, and they finished it ahead of schedule and under budget. It was 2,000 miles. They went through the Sierra Nevada mountains. I mean, it was a really, really tough thing, and it cost a lot of lives as well. Yes. It was a big deal. And so my family's role is that my grandmother made it her life's work. She was born in 1900, and she made it her life's work growing up in that area to have the site recognized and remembered because it was desolate and there was nothing there but the concrete obelisk from 1917 until 1969 or so when the visitor center was built. And so she wrote over 3,000 letters and articles to presidents and Congress people and National Park Service and anyone she could get involved and get them on the bandwagon to help support it. And wow. for a long time, nobody really cared. But then she was able to get some support from the Box Elder Chamber of Commerce and start a nonprofit called Golden Spike Society and then the National Golden Spike Association. And in the 1950s, she was one of the first female members of the Box Elder Chamber of Commerce. And so she was smart and knew that as a writer, she was a Salt Lake Tribune staff reporter and writer, that that was a way to help people learn about this and know that it wasn't just this dusty little ground in the middle of nowhere, but that was like a pivotal event in American history. Yeah, it could be argued that it was a pivotal event in world history when you consider what it, it did be. for our economy uh -huh. and then what that did for the world economy as a result it of it. Be. Because yeah. people used to be able to travel across the continent, but they could only do it by horse and wagon. And right. it took months. And all of it a sudden, take uh -huh. it took days. And yes. you could haul stuff. And, it and was a game changer, for sure. <laughs> uh -huh. it, was, uh, it was. You know, we always talk about the Civil War being really the central event in American history. When you consider post-Civil War, this has to be as, as much a, an important part of our story as anything else you can think of. Absolutely. So she wrote her first telegraph to Congress in 1926 when she was 26 years old and a young mother. And she had grown up driving cattle with her step-grandfather along the railroad right-of-way through Promontory Valley. Mm -hmm. And so she was very familiar from the time she was five years old and moved to West Corinne with the stories and with the history of the railroad going through there and what happened for the wedding of the rails for the Transcontinental Railroad. So she just built on that. It was a burning desire in her heart all this time to have it be more than just something the locals knew about, to have it recognized. Did she get responses and, back? I mean, you say she wrote 3,000 mm -hmm. letters in these telegrams. Yeah. Who did she actually hear you know back what? from? She wrote, she wrote to President Eisenhower. She wrote to President David O. McKay of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She wrote to anybody that she could think of that might give her some support. And a lot of these letters are digitized and online on the University of Utah Digital Collection for the J. Wilbur Marriott Library huh. and also the Box Elder County Museum. It's not hard to substantiate all this because the National Park Service has 18 boxes of her personal papers and photos in their archives wow. down in Tucson. And I know the archivist down there told me a few weeks ago, it's one of the coolest collections that he's ever seen related to a national park. And it wouldn't be cataloged that way now if he was doing it. But back in the day, they just threw it all in boxes, I guess, and called it good. So he started scanning her largest scrapbook that used to be at the visitor center. And I'm going to get it on a flash drive soon. And he told me to come down and use the research room and start scanning the rest of it. And so that's my next project. Wow. <laughs> it's, going to take, it's going to take several <laughs> research visits, but... Yeah. But among all these people that she wrote to, <laughs> did she ever hear back from anybody? She did. And, and you can see some of the responses. She would always ask for them to send her back their original letter and the original pictures. It was kind of funny that she would do that. And so 
some of them would send it back and say, as you requested, I'm sending this back to you. And uh, this is a national matter. Like the state of Utah governor would say, this is a national matter, right to them. The Congress people would say, this is a state matter. And, and some people would say, this is a local Box Elder County matter. <laughs> you know, she, she just, they just passed the buck, you know, that, you know we're not right. really interested for years and years. Round and round and, and then, round. Mm-hmm. And then in 1947, for the days of 47 centennial, somebody, I think Marie Jepson from the Box Elder County or Brigham area, wrote a script that I believe was the original reenactment done at Hotel Utah in Salt Lake. And so my grandma helped with that because she was known as the historian that had the most original photos. She was the go-to person for, do you want to know about Golden Spike? Talk to Bernice Gibbs Anderson. She's the keeper of the flame. So this reenactment was done in 47, and then nothing until, I believe, 1952. And in that year, my grandma was instrumental in getting the reenactment started at the site. That was the first annual ceremony, like the one that was just a few days ago on Friday. So the one on Friday was the 68th annual ceremony. And so she was able to finally get the notice of the National Park Service. They sent someone out there, a man named Bob Butley. He's still alive. He lives here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Very sharp. I've talked to him recently. He wasn't able to make it up there for the trip, but he is known as a historian who writes several books. He's got one about Custer, and my grandma's mentioned in that book. He tells a whole story about when he went out to Golden Spike site, and she took him around and showed him everything and why this should be in the National Park Service system. And he said, you know, you're right. I'm going to help you. And he did help her and got it to be a National Park Service historic site at the time. Until this past spring, as you probably heard, now it's been elevated to be a National Historical Park in the National Park Service system. And that is amazing. And our family (laughs) is so proud and excited. And that was my grandma's goal all the time. You know, she was happy that it was a site that was good, but she always wanted to be a national, quote-unquote, monument. So being a national historical park, that's as good as it can get. We're just thrilled that it's finally happened. So how did you feel when you were standing there between these two rail engines Uh in your period costume with all these descendants of people who worked on this incredible Mm -hmm. project that changed the world? Um, It was a poignant moment for me just to think about what it was like back in 1869 and then what it took to get... 20,000 people out there that day, it's finally catching on that people (laughs) are recognizing, hey, this is in the middle of nowhere, but it's worth a visit. We need to go out here. And I was asked in an interview at the state capitol, I happened to be up there in January, well, what do you think about the location of it being at the original site and not in Ogden or Brigham City or somewhere, you know, more people would visit it, not so far off the beaten track. And I said, I'd never heard that that was even a consideration. <laughs> you would move it somewhere else. <laughs> to me, that would be like moving Gettysburg to a different site just because it's not convenient to visit. Yeah, you know? very nice. Right? G- good answer. She's Mikkel Keeney. She's a search angel from Tempe, Arizona, and the granddaughter of the woman who really made this happen over decades of effort. Thank you so much for sharing your story, and always enjoy chatting with you. Thank you. And coming up next, it's another Ask Us Anything segment with special guest, me. I love it when you guys send questions, and that's why, of course, we do our Ask Us Anything segment here on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. It is Fisher, and we have an email from Libby, who sent us a note at askusanything at extremegenes.com. And Libby's in Greenville, South Carolina. And Libby says, Fisher, I've heard you talk before about how you find family history things on eBay. Can you go through once again the process and how that works? Great question, Libby, and it's always worth 
worth repeating. Here's the thing. eBay has never really shrunk in size. It's only increasing in the material that's out there to be found. And I think we tend to underestimate what the possibilities are there. So I learned this long ago that if you put in search terms, periodically when you put them in, they will bring up something that you're looking for, a family Bible, maybe a high school yearbook. I found all of my dad's four years of high school yearbooks from 1928 to 1931 on eBay. And I paid... I think it was $55 for it. And he had signed them all. He'd written in them. And I found all kinds of pictures in there that I'd never seen of him before. It was very fun to find those. And I found other items, too. And and the way it works typically, though, is not that you find them immediately. It's you put in the search terms for what you're looking for. And then at some point, somebody lists something And then you get a notification email that says, hey, there's something here that matches your search terms. And maybe it's just postcards from an ancestral hometown that go back to whenever, 1907 or the 1890s. And these things are absolutely unbelievable. If I started going through a list of all the things that I found on eBay that relate to my family, you wouldn't believe it. And, of course, you may have heard recently we had a guest on the show in England who tried it based on what he heard here, and he discovered as a result of that the medals of his great-grandfather's brother from World War One, and that brother was killed in World War One. So it was an amazing story and uh, thrilling to hear about it. So it can definitely work for you as well. Think about different things that might be out there that you'd be looking for, things relating to the hometown, maybe not specifically to an ancestor, maybe something as specific as Bible records, maybe something like the yearbooks we're talking about. If your ancestor had a certain public profile, there might be some things out there relating to that. What if your ancestor belonged to certain organizations? I talk about my great-grandfather a lot, who was a volunteer fireman in New York City, so I like to look for things relating specifically to the fire unit that he served under. Once using YouTube, I found this movie of my father playing in an orchestra in 1936, and by using eBay, I found an original film copy of that, which was a much better quality than what we'd seen on YouTube, and I was able to have it digitized, and then take from that film individual frames that made photographs for me. So it was one thing led to the next and led to the next. So you really have to use your imagination a little bit, but it can be the kind of thing where you can place a search term at one point in time. And maybe over the years, you get many, many false notifications. In other words, notifications of something that you're really not very interested in or it doesn't really fit what you're looking for. But then somewhere down the line, five years later, you find that one item that makes you say, man, this has all been entirely worth it. So put in the search terms. And if you find nothing, it gives you the option to save that search term and get emails in the future. So you want to click that box. And by the way, you can save many search terms. There is a limit, but it's a very high threshold, so you don't have too much to worry about. And of course, we're going to continue our Ask Us Anything segment. This question comes from Larry in Florida. Larry saying, hey, Fisher, doing a DNA test seems really expensive. Should I be testing my children? Well, the answer to that would probably be, unless, Larry, you wanted to know that they were yours, (laughs) probably not. And, And the reason is, is because your children only have half the DNA that you have, and you have only half the DNA that your parents have, and your parents have half the DNA that your grandparents have. So you really want to test starting at the oldest person first. If you're lucky enough to have a grandparent, maybe even a great grandparent still living, those are the people you want to test and see if you can't get some 
some DNA matches going from there. And then work on down. In fact, I have friends who are DNA specialists who have not even tested themselves because they have parents and grandparents still living and they have tested them. The further back you go, the more DNA you get from the past and the better the possibility of finding matches from further back. People that you won't match because you only have half the DNA of the generation that comes before you. Now, if you're looking, of course, to find out about ethnicity, if you have no way of testing the other parent of your children, then that would be a great thing to do potentially to find out where the ethnicity falls. But keep in mind, for the money you're spending, you're also seeing the ethnicity results changing every year or so. So it might be something you might want to wait on if you're just thinking about the ethnicity test. Keep in mind also, yeah, we talk a lot about DNA and how much fun it is and how important it is, but it's only important in terms of how it relates to the records that you find. So if you have your DNA test done and you have no records and you have no family tree, then you really don't have any records to validate through those. So do all you can to connect records with your ancestors and put together as documented a family tree as you possibly can. And then when you get your DNA test, you'll find that those can help you validate that your work is accurate. And it's a lot of fun after all these years. I've been doing it for 35 plus years that when you get those records together to find all these different people match from, say, a second great grandfather or a third great or fourth great grandparents to validate your work and know that you've absolutely been on the right course. So focus on the old folks first and get your records together and make sure that you validated as many generations back as you possibly can. And then you'll find that the matches validate your work and that's the best thing you can possibly do it's so much fun by the way when you post your trees make sure you keep them public will you so that we can see what's going on nobody's going to steal anybody's identity when they're dead especially for many many years if you want to keep somebody private from more recent generations just mark them as still living and the sites will not reveal their identity but if you're going back to people who died many years ago you shouldn't have anything to worry about and it helps everybody else out that's the whole name of the game larry thanks so much for your email. We appreciate it. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email me at askusanything at extremegenes.com. That is our show for this week. Thanks so much to Randy Markham, the historian with the West Virginia Archives, talking about those Civil War Union medals that may be waiting for you if you're a descendant of a Union soldier who served out of West Virginia. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.